The scripture reading today is John chapter 12, verses 37 to 50. It can be found on page 899 of your pew Bible if you're following along. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, for again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Thanks, Jody. So in our text today, John unblushingly teaches us about this cosmic choreography between man's responsibility to believe in God and God's sovereignty over the belief in God. And I say choreography on purpose because they work together. All throughout the scriptures, the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man are compatible truths. They're not at odds. Look at verse 37 there. Though they had witnessed many of Jesus' miracles, they still did not believe. How is this? They, they saw Jesus turn water into wine. They saw him heal a blind man. They saw fish and bread multiply. They saw Lazarus raise, and yet they still refused to believe in his identity as the Son of God. And yet in verse 42, we find some of the leaders believing. And so what we see in this text is, is an example of Jesus being history's line in the sand. Jesus is history's line in the sand, and we all stand on one side of it or the other. All of us in here do, too. God's heart is that all would run to him for life and hope and help. But the fact is is that some of us do not run to God in this way. It's a sad, hard reality that John 12 deals with. How do we account for this, though? How do we account for the fact that there are people on both sides of the line? I think John is subtly but intentionally raising this very question in the text. It's a good question. Why don't more believe in Jesus as the Son of God? And I think John gives us two answers in the text this morning. They may seem incompatible to you as a human being, 
but they're not. Why didn't more believe? Reason number one is right there in verse 37. They did not believe because they didn't want to. They just, they didn't want to believe. The second reason is found there in verse 39, if you look. They could not believe. So there's the did not believe, they didn't want to, and then there's the could not believe. They lacked the ability to in some way. Well, which is it? Was it that they didn't believe or was it that they couldn't believe? During our time together this morning, we're all going to experience a little bit of tension. The either or section of our brains is going to want to take over here. It's got to be one or the other. But the scriptures consistently hold to both. There is a tension all throughout the Bible, Old Testament all the way through to the end of the New Testament. There's this tension between the responsibility of man to believe and the sovereignty of God over belief. And John right here claims that these are both simultaneously true at the same time, whether or not we can understand it, whether or not we can fully iron out all the wrinkles that these truths rumple up in our brains. It's still true. The fact remains that in God's actual reality, these two truths fit together snugly and logically. But the burning question is this. Why is the truth of Jesus revealed to some and hidden from others? It's a hard question. Why and how has God blinded some hearts, blinded some eyes, and hardened some hearts like verse 40 says? Well, I think the first two words of verse 38 give us a clue. The purpose of unbelief is to fulfill the scriptures, to specifically fulfill the words written by a prophet named Isaiah, who lived thousands of years before this and John was even written. So if you look at verse 38 there, it's actually a quote from this prophet Isaiah, from the 53rd chapter of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah is a book in the Old Testament. It's one of the major prophets. And then verse 40 there is a quote from Isaiah 6. So we got quotes from Isaiah 53 and quotes from Isaiah chapter 6. Now, John could have left Isaiah out of this. He didn't have to quote Isaiah here. He could have just said, the unbelief of Israel was planned by God and their hardness and blindness is because of his sovereign choice. He could have said that, but he didn't do that. Instead, he quotes Isaiah. Why does he do this? I want to explore this for just a minute. I think it's because Isaiah 6 and Isaiah 53 are both pre-incarnations, so before Jesus came to be a man, pre-incarnation portraits of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 6 and Isaiah 53 are both those. And if you read those, am I doing something wrong? What am I doing wrong? Oh. I didn't even think I moved that much. At least, at least it's not Justin up here today. Man. Back and forth. He does quote Isaiah. Why does he do this? I think it's because Isaiah 6 and Isaiah 53 are both pre-incarnation portraits of Jesus Christ. And if you were to read them, Isaiah 6 and 53, you would note that they are wildly different portrayals of Jesus. They're both true, and yet they're just manifestations of different aspects of his character and of his identity. And what we find is that Israel rejects both portraits of Jesus, both in Isaiah 6 and in Isaiah 53. So verse 38 there in John chapter 12 quotes Isaiah 53, which gives us a glimpse, a kind of behind-the-scenes picture 
as to why Jesus was rejected by, by Israel. It says this. You can look on screen. For he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. So that's sort of one snapshot of the Messiah, of Jesus, that Israel rejected. A lowly, weak, embarrassing, unmagisterial picture of a king. Why did they not believe? Because he had no form, no majesty. As a man, he was simply not messianic material. Basically, the Messiah wasn't who they thought he would be. They, he was not who... He was not who they thought he would be, and so they rejected him. God knew they'd reject this kind of Messiah, but but he still sent him. But they also rejected another portrait of Jesus, and that's the one that's in Isaiah 6. In Isaiah 6, Isaiah preaches this really staggering vision that he's had of God. It's staggering and frightening. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. It's this really challenging picture of Jesus in all of his heavenly glory. But later in that chapter of Isaiah 6, we find that Israel was blinded and hardened by this vision. Why? Because they didn't want to hear about the majesty and glory and holiness of Jesus. So why does humanity reject him? Why did Israel and why do some of us and many around the world reject Jesus? Because we don't like who he actually is. That's what the world is going to tell you. They're going to tell you that Jesus is not the kind of Messiah that they want. They're going to tell you that you're a clown for believing in the fact that he is the Messiah. They'll say that his views on sexuality are backwards. That his ideas about how you should spend your money are restrictive. That his very distinct and intentional roles for men and women in the family and in the church are oppressive. But they're dead wrong. Trinity, let us not do what Israel did. Let us honor the God who is, not the God our misinformed instincts or friends or family or colleagues tell us should be. Let's honor God as he conveys himself. And as we look into the mirror of God's word, we should be adjusting what we see in the mirror, what is out of place with us. See, sometimes we're tempted to tamper with what we see in God's word because it makes us feel a little bit uncomfortable or maybe we disagree with something that we see in there. But we we must not. God is God and we are not. Thomas Jefferson, former president of the United States, signed our uh, Declaration of Independence. He's famous for creating his own Bible out of the New Testament. He, He thought of himself as someone who liked Jesus but it had some better ideas than Jesus. So he took this little penknife and he cut out the sections of the New Testament that he didn't like or that he disagreed with. But what Jefferson was doing in those moments was worshiping himself as God. He worshiped himself. A God of our own making is the God of self. How many of us in here, if in our darkest moments we might admit that We want to rip part of the scriptures out because they embarrass us. How many of us ignore the aspects of the Bible that puzzle us? Can I just take a moment to encourage us to submit to the God who is? 
instead of trying to create an impotent God of our own making. So this is why the Jews rejected Jesus. Because who he was wasn't who they wanted. Who he was was an embarrassment to them, offensive to them. Even those who believed, those who were sympathetic to Jesus' teaching, even they were embarrassed by it. If you look there at verse 42, many even of the authorities believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they didn't confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Now, I don't know. I'm not here to stand as judge over whether or not this faith that the, these authorities had was authentic or not. What I do know was that their faith was at the very least flawed. And this flaw is the Achilles heel of humanity throughout all of history. We ought to pay close attention. The flaw is found there in verse 43. They love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Humanity's Achilles heels that they respect their instincts more than they honor God's decrees. They view their own opinions with greater esteem than they do God's opinions. It's a real problem for us as humans. Essentially, these religious authorities that believed, they were embarrassed by Jesus. They were embarrassed to side with him when so many of their colleagues and friends weren't budging. When Jesus came up in conversation, they scuffed the floor and they diverted their gaze. They were ashamed of the God who is. Anytime you blush about something that God doesn't blush about, you have crossed over into idolatry. You've raised your opinion up over God's. Like Jefferson, you've made yourself God. You've lorded over God and his word, believing you can do it better. But then what you have in those moments is a God who cannot save you, that isn't potent in any way, that can't transform your heart, this world, even one bit. That's why we must check our instincts at the cover of this book and allow it to retrain our hearts in truth. So I think what we're beginning to see here in the text is that the way God planned to blind and harden many of the hearts of those in Israel was by sending them a Messiah that they were hardwired to reject. God gave them what they needed, but not what they wanted or not what they expected. And in that way, he blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. But if this is true, isn't it God who rejected them rather than they who rejected God? Couldn't he have sent a Messiah that made more sense to them so that they would believe? And now this is the question of the hour, isn't it? Maybe it's burning in your gut like it is in mine. Who rejects who? Does God reject man or does man reject God? This is the question that meddles with our sense of human independence. We prickle when we read texts like this, especially verses 39 and 40, if you glance down again. But if you're hoping that I was going to be able to explain away all of the complexities or the discomfort that you might be feeling when you read a text like this, if you're hoping that I'll be able to untangle all of that this morning, I think you're going to leave disappointed. I'm sorry. We're not here to get God off the hook today. We're here to worship the God who is everything. And I mean everything falls within the scope of his sovereign decrees, which is precisely what makes God, God. 
You wouldn't want a puny God that was servant to every whim of man, would you? You want a God that is good and sovereign, and in Jesus you have one. John Newton draws out a really great encouragement for the Christians in here this morning. Even if we can't fully solve all the riddles of God's sovereign grace, I hope these words will encourage you. The same Christ who was pierced for sinners is the Christ who governs and rules over every trial, measuring every sting with the love which can give no unnecessary pain to those for whom he died upon the cross. God is sovereign and good. But back to our question, who rejects who? Thankfully, we're not the only ones who have felt this tension in history. The early church in the city of Rome felt it too. And Paul addresses this question of theirs in Romans chapter 9. I'd like to walk us through this this morning. Romans 9 starts out like this. When Rebecca had conceived children, this was Jacob and Esau, her two twin sons, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Man, what do you do with a text like that? Is God picking favorites? Jacob gets in and Esau doesn't? How's that fair? Is there injustice in God? Have we finally stumbled upon that one aspect of God's character that is just distorted? Is this the proverbial wart on the end of God's nose? Well, the Bible knows you, and it knows me, and it knows that this is our question. This question is going to brew in our hearts. So back to Romans 9. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. No, not a chance. God is not unjust. He's not being mean. God can't be mean. He's not some kind of cosmic meaning. He can be merciful and just, but he cannot be mean. It's absolutely inappropriate to look at God and say, you're unjust. You don't know what you're doing. He's the very definition of justice. There is no injustice in God. Now, for any sinner, for any of us in all of history who does not turn from our sins, there is real, deserved justice for, for the wrongs that we have done. But in the gospel, what we get is not just deserved wrath, deserved justice, but undeserved mercy. Not because God ignores his justice or sets it aside, but because he dumps all of his wrath and dumps all of his justice on someone else so that we don't have to absorb it. It's Jesus. So there is a better question than why does God allow people to go to hell? There's a better question than that. The better question is this. Why would a just God ever let me into heaven? That's the real question. And God's mercy is astounding. Verse 15 in Romans 9. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. And so, I don't know if you're feeling this at all, but our human independence is utterly wrecked here, completely. 
God is proclaimed as great and glorious and the undefeated sovereign. And there is nothing, nothing we can do but cast ourselves at his feet and say, please give us mercy. We fall short of your glory. There's not one shred of goodness in you that can impress God. Maybe that's hard to hear for you. I don't know. It's hard for me to hear. But it's the truth. But that's, that's better news than you might at first think it is. Because he shows mercy not based on our performance. If he showed mercy based on our performance, we would never measure up. We wouldn't be able to get the mercy because we're not good enough. But he shows us mercy out of the goodness of his heart because of what the Christ has done on our behalf. And now the, the Bible again, it knows exactly what questions we're asking in our hearts based on verse 15 of Romans chapter 9 that we just read. And the Bible has answers. Why does God hold us accountable if we can't believe? Where's the logic in that? Verse 19, you will say to me then, why does God still find fault in us? For who can resist his will? Now, now Paul has an answer for this question. But I'm going to warn you, it's not going to tickle your pride this morning. It will not stroke your ego in any way. It's not going to fully satisfy our curiosity either, I don't think. Instead, it's going to put us in our place. God is God. We are not. Look, if God handed you the keys to the universe and said, here, go run it, what would you do? Man, we can't even run our own lives, right? You know what I'm saying? Like, we have a hard time paying the bills and being friendly to our kids and friends and colleagues. There is no way we could run this thing any better, much less bring about maximum good and maximum glory for the entire universe. And so Paul says, but who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? So what we see here is that God is patient. He endures. He is kind. He's never kept someone out of the family that deserved to be in the family. He has never kept someone out of the family that didn't deserve to be out of the family, is what I should say. He doesn't have a quick trigger like you and I have. He's waited patiently for so many to come to him who have ultimately rejected him. And in the same way, he's never let someone in to his family that ever deserved to be in it, in and of themselves. It's all mercy, not based on your performance or mine. He's patiently endured toward each of us. Verse 23, he's patiently endured in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, that's you and me, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not my beloved, I will call my beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of and daughters of the living God. Friends, for those of us in Jesus, we were once not as people, 
but now we're his peeps. We are the peeps of God Almighty, the creator of the universe. In Jesus, we are his people. We were once not beloved, but we are now beloved. We were once kicked out of the family, but we're brothers and sisters, sons and daughters of the living God now, all by the sovereign grace of God, the unblushing sovereign grace of God. So as we wrap today, here are a few things, I think, some, some, some sort of uh, concluding ideas that we can gather from this startling picture of God's sovereign grace. First, there are things that are beyond our ability as human beings to fully wrap our minds around. But I want to encourage you to not give up too soon. When we're faced with truths that are challenging to reconcile like we've dealt with today, we should work hard to understand them. And then, hear this, leave the rest to God. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. Let's leave some of these things that we can't reconcile, these secret things, leave them to God. Some of the questions that we've asked today or the answers to the questions should be left in that category of secret things. Second, none of us know how wide the gap is between I won't believe and I can't believe. We don't know how, that, how, how wide that gap is, so don't delay your belief. If you're on the edge this morning, can I encourage you, take that step into belief. We never know when God will give us over to ourselves and cement us in our unbelief. This is what Romans 11 calls a severe kindness. It's severe and that danger looms. There is, there is real justice to be paid for our sins. But it's a kindness in that there is shelter available immediately that will protect you from that. Come under the shelter. That's why earlier in John 12, we hear Jesus pleading, while you have the light, believe in the light. Please, become sons of the light. We just never know when the light's going to run out. Because you don't know, believe now. Third, God owes sinners nothing. He owes sinners nothing. That's part and parcel of being God. He doesn't have any debts that he owes. It's only by God's sovereign mercy and compassion that we can join his family. But he doesn't owe that to us in any way. Instead, he gave it freely to us. So this morning, instead of feeling put off by God's sovereignty, we should feel exhilarated that God would grant us a spot in his place and in his family. Next, God's gospel imposes perfect, deserved justice. Nothing more, nothing less. Here's the deal. Because God is perfectly just, nothing slides. No small, small, small sin of yours will slide with God because he's perfectly just. We want that in our judges and our current justice system. When, when someone has wronged someone else, we want the judges to hold them accountable. God is no different. He's just the perfect judge. We're accountable for everything you do. Now, here's the deal. You're going to absorb the justice for that. Or Jesus can absorb that justice for you. That's the way it works. I hope you'll go with Jesus. He will absorb your justice fully and give you a place in the kingdom of God. He's got his hand out inviting you in. It's a beautiful, amazing gift of God. Next, we've said this a thousand times this morning, God's sovereign grace is your only hope. 
And then finally this morning, God's gospel presents sad truths to provoke glad hearts. God's gospel presents sad truths like we've seen today in order to provoke glad hearts. These things aren't relayed to us this morning to discourage, discourage us, but to invite us. John and Jesus say this to lovingly and graciously and mercifully jar us out of independence and into dependence on a good and saving God. The sadness of Israel's rejection of God is meant to spur you into your own joyful acceptance of God. The same sunshine that hardens clay melts snow. I hope you'll let the word of God this morning melt your heart and not harden your heart. That's my prayer. That's my big hope that we would all humbly and happily trust in our good God. If this is the God who truly is in this book, and it is, then his severity and his kindness ought to draw us out of lethargy and into life. Sometimes the biggest takeaway from a text is simply to believe it. And I think that's what it is this morning, to say, you're God and I'm not. And I want to honor who you are, God. I think that's John 12's function in our lives, the end of it in our lives today. So let's humbly and happily trust in our Christ. Will you pray with me this morning? Lord, we love you because you first loved us. We are undeserving recipients of your love, but we pray that there's anyone in here who has not yet placed their faith in their only hope for this life and the next, that has said, Jesus, absorb my wrath so I don't have to. I pray that those people in here this morning would see the unblushing, sovereign grace of God and accept it on their behalf. Rescue hearts and souls this morning. Pierce the darkness of our hearts with the light, the eternal light of the Son of God. Help us find life in your name, not just on a Sunday, but on our every day. In Jesus' name, amen.